to the inaugural episode of Costume Drama Rewind. I'm Megan Jett. And I'm Laura Skog. We're a pair of history enthusiasts and members of the public history community with many opinions about historical films. In honor of the 4th of July, we're starting off the podcast with The Patriot, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary. It was directed by Roland Emmerich and starred Mel Gibson, Heath Ledger, Jason Isaacs, and Jolie Richardson. Let's start with a quick synopsis first. Benjamin Martin, a.k.a. Mel Gibson, is a farmer and war hero from the French and Indian War, but he's hesitant to join the fight for liberty in South Carolina during the American Revolution because he's not really convinced that independence is going to pan out. His son Gabriel, played by Heath Ledger, does believe this, so he signs up to fight, and years later he stumbles home during a battle. Farmer Ben takes in the wounded soldiers, and then we meet the film's baddie, Colonel Tabington, played by Jason Isaacs, a.k.a. Lucius Malfoy who rides up with more redcoats. He easily figures out that Gabriel is a continental soldier, that Mel Gibson is his dad, and he orders Gabriel arrested as a spy and the farm destroyed. Gabriel's younger brother tries to intervene, and Tabington shoots him. Avada Kedavra. (laughs) Farmer Ben goes gorilla, gets Gabriel back, and traumatizes several of his kids in the process. After this, he joins the war effort, and he's given a colonel's appointment in the militia and instructions to keep the British regulars busy through further guerrilla activity. Tavington learns of his identity and targets Farmer Ben's sister-in-law's place where his younger kids are staying. They flee to a Gullah community on the beach, and Gabriel marries his girlfriend there. Unfortunately, when the new Mrs. Martin and her parents go back to their hometown, they're met with Tavington, who locks up all the villagers in the church and burns them to death in retaliation for the villagers helping Farmer Ben's men. Gabriel tracks down Tavington and tries to kill him, only to be killed by Tavington instead. Ben almost quits his militia at this point of grief, but then he rejoins with the most unnecessary flag-waving scene ever, helps the Continental regulars win the battle by using Cornwallis' disregard for the militia against him, kills Tavington, and as the movie winds down, we see Cornwallis' surrender at Yorktown, and then, finally, Farmer Ben returning to the house that his militia members have started rebuilding for him, because they have nothing else to do. It's very sweet of them. Yes. We're always going to start out with a few of our first impressions. I first found this movie on basic cable sometime in late high school, and it hooked me right away because I was a baby Revolutionary War buff, and there just wasn't a lot of film or television for us at that time. For an event as dramatic and consequential as the Revolution, it really doesn't seem to appeal much to filmmakers, so this movie was an early favorite for me, and I've probably seen it at least a dozen, okay, possibly a couple dozen times over the years, and I've always been fond of it, so it's been interesting to watch it with a more critical eye. Okay, so I saw this movie on a lazy Saturday night in 2007. Um, I liked the women's fashion because I am interested in historic costumes and I really like the scenery because it's very beautiful. But other than that, I didn't really feel any real connection to it and didn't really think much about the film until we started this podcast. You're welcome, since I insisted we (laughs) we start with this one. Let's get right down to the heart of the matter. The filmmakers who made The Patriot actually worked pretty closely with historians at the Smithsonian on the production, so in consequence, many of the details of tactics and outfit are pretty good. They did make the odd but understandable narrative decision to have the big set-piece battle be a composite of two engagements, the Battles of Cowpens and Guilford Courthouse, the latter of which was actually a British victory, unlike what's shown in the movie, though fairly costly one. But the point of this podcast, by and large, is not going to be to count the seconds between musket shots or zoom in on Benjamin Martin's buttons. Please laugh. Ah, bad pun. Instead, we're going to be asking, what are the major historical themes? 
what does this film and what does each film we watch say about the actual history? And also, what does it say about how we interpret and remember that history? Okay. Well, first, let's talk about composites. So Ben Martin is supposed to be a composite of various Carolinian fighters. He gets attached most often to Swamp Fox Francis Marion, who led numerous guerrilla attacks against the British and eluded escape by traveling in the swamps. But they also draw from some other people to round out his character, such as Thomas Sumter, that's the guy that Fort Sumter is named for, uh, who fought in the French and Indian War, and he started actively fighting in the Revolution with his own band of men after Tarleton burned his house. Rude. Yeah. Uh, His nickname was the Carolina Gamecock, and that is where the university mascot comes from, and he was a serious irritant for Cornwallis. Also, there's Andrew Pickens, who fought in the Cherokee Wars and led a South Carolina militia during the Battle of Calpins. I find it interesting that Bannister Tarleton, who we're going to talk about in a hot second, uh, that his legacy apparently is coming up with nicknames for both Marion and Sumter, ones that still stick around today. So, as we'll talk about more, maybe branding and advertising might have been a better career choice for him than either war or parliament. I think this film shows some interesting perspectives that aren't always present in war films. First and foremost is that while the the filmmakers to some extent subscribe to a great man theory of history, in which events are driven by one noble, heroic, indispensable figure, in some sense we're supposed to believe that the non-existent Benjamin Martin is solely responsible for the American victory, this really isn't a narrative driven by those that people might consider the capital letter great names of the time. It's largely a story about the experience of common soldiers and low-level militia leaders. George Washington turns up for a single deleted scene and one long-distance horseback shot, and other, otherwise he's really absent from the theatrical release. He's name-checked a couple of times, largely for characters to note that he's busy running from the British and losing his fight. Way harsh, Ty. Which at this point in the war actually isn't inaccurate. General Horatio Gates appears at a distance, and only long enough for Benjamin Martin to insult him, calls him a damn fool. Seriously, these people are rude. (laughs) (laughs) So the emphasis here is definitely on the day-to-day experiences of those who were grunts in the war. The movie also does a pretty decent job of showing the home front experience. Early on, Martin tells the South Carolina Assembly that this war will be fought in people's front yards and in their homes, and that was especially true in the Carolinas during the Revolution. There's a scene at the beginning where Martin and all his hundreds of kids are out on their front porch and they can hear cannon fire and musket fire from just a couple of miles off. That was a very real experience that people had during this war, even though I always find myself shouting, take the kids inside during this part of the movie. There's another scene a little later where you're looking at an empty, peaceful cornfield on the Martin property and then a company of British soldiers silently emerges And it actually is, for my money, one of the most subtly frightening things I've ever seen on film. Oh, you watch horror movies regularly. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's move to the other side of the fight. Uh, Let's talk about the enemy. Uh, So Jason Isaac's character is based on the real-life Bannister Tarleton, best name ever. Uh, Tarleton did have a ruthless reputation. He fired on Americans trying to surrender during the Battle of Waxhaws, uh, which you weren't supposed to do. He killed numerous soldiers, he did execute American soldiers in front of their families, and he did burn the land of those who supported the revolution. However, he didn't kill women and children, and he certainly would would not have locked up an entire church load of people and killed them. Uh, A movie review that the Journal for American History did notes that Tarleton 
had he done these things that Tabington had done in the movie, would have inspired, quote-unquote, retaliation against British prisoners. Uh, this goes to another point. Uh, the movie obscures uh, that the war in the southern states was largely loyalist Americans fighting against continental neighbors. Uh, neighbor fighting neighbor, if you will. Uh, in the movie, it's largely prissy British elites with fancy accents uh, fighting real men Americans who apparently don't shave, don't brush their hair, and probably don't use deodorant. Uh, you also get to see the militia in action. Uh, they made up a significant part of the American fighting force, and it's estimated that about 100,000 soldiers served in the Continental Army, but about twice as many served in various militia units that saw action. And as we see in the film, uh, they operated in under their own rules, drifting in and out of the war as needed. But they were absolutely essential, despite the fact that, as depicted in the movie, leaders on both sides, not just the enemy, but including Washington, really didn't think much of them. Now, one area where critics knock this film is that it seems to boil the revolution down to one man's personal vendetta. Ben Martin certainly starts out the story as a moderate. He's unhappy with British colonial rule, but he's also unwilling to commit to independence until he gets radicalized by the killing of his son. I was reminded over the July 4th weekend that moderates generally get a lot of guff in film and television that covers the revolution. In the John Adams miniseries, which, by the way, I love and will make Laura cover at some point, oh my gosh. the two primary antagonists are Edward Rutledge and John Dickinson, both of whom in their ways have impeccable revolutionary credentials. Dickinson never signed the declaration, but he rose to the rank of brigadier general during the, in the Pennsylvania militia during the war. Rutledge is actually one of the cohort of signers of the declaration who spent time in jail for it. So in a genre where the moderates often get portrayed maybe inaccurately, as squishy weaklings, it's really interesting to see this movie put for, uh, have a lead character put forward a strong case for the middle path of resisting British rule, but not immediately jumping on board with independence. Now, one other area where it gets panned is in its handling of the Black experience during the Revolution. The question of slavery is handled in in an incredibly sanitized way, the filmmakers clearly did not want to have their good guy character be a slaveholder, so early in the film it's made clear that, for the purposes of their script, the black workers on Martin's farm are free rather than enslaved. Now, from a historical perspective, we need to ask ourselves, first, is it possible? Second, is it likely? There certainly was a sizable free black population in and around Charleston at this particular time. Of course, as we move into the 19th century, this would have been made impossible by both law and culture. Um, it certainly seems that Martin's farm was growing corn rather than more labor-intensive commodity crops like indigo or rice. But the free black people in South Carolina at this time were primarily working in urban trades and the shipping industry. They weren't really in rural areas or in agriculture. So while it's certainly possible that the black workers on the Martin farm were free and paid for their work, it's not especially likely. Right. Uh, and there's a whole storyline surrounding this one guy named Ockham. He is the enslaved person that is, uh, quote-unquote, given to Farmer Ben's militia by his owner. This storyline is completely moot if you look at it through the lens of history. So black soldiers were allowed to enlist from 1778 and ultimately made up about 5% of the Patriot fighting force, but that's only in the New England area and northern states that allowed those enlistments. Uh, South Carolina simply didn't allow black soldiers in the ranks and carrying weapons. As many of y'all have probably watched and listened over the weekend to Hamilton, y'all know that uh, 
John Lawrence worked with Continental Congress to approve a militia of black men to fight in exchange for their freedom, but South Carolina shot this proposal down. There's also another aspect of black history that's featured in the film, but it's only hinted at, and that's the Gullah encampment where the Martin kids flee to. The Gullah Geechee community is descended from Africans enslaved in the coastal areas of the Southeast. They were able to retain several elements of their West African cultural heritage, and this culture is still vibrant today, particularly in South Carolina and Georgia. However, because the film doesn't explore how Abigail, the possibly free housekeeper, and the other workers from the Martin Farm escaped the British to get to one of these communities, we don't get to see any of uh, this cultural significance. And uh, because the Black characters don't have agency or real storylines, while we do see some food and musical performances, it's purely in the lens of them basically catering and emceeing Gabriel's wedding and not focusing on the significance of these elements that are still around today. Which is actually something that I didn't know a lot until Laura and I talked about it. So that would have been fun to see. So now the all-important question that we are going to ask in every podcast, which is how many hats? Our rating system is, in fact, going to be based on the many hats of history. We're going to be rating each film out of five hats, and we're going to change it up according to the popular headgear of the period depicted in whatever we're watching from week to week. So, Laura, how many tricorns would you give The Patriot? 2.5. So partly because of the specific historical inaccuracies that we talked about, but also I just found this movie really cringy to watch. Like, I'm genuinely adverse to awkward romance on screen, and the whole Aunt Charlotte B-plot was super awkward. Is Mel Gibson in love with her because she's wealthy and beautiful? Or is it because he realizes he really needs to have a babysitter? Uh, And also there's Mel Gibson's 30-second flag-wielding shenanigans when he's uh, rejoining the men on the way to possibly Calpin's... uh, that's really painful. It's really hokey. Uh, and then let's talk about Jason Isaacs. Uh, he is beautiful and I love him and he should have lived to become Lord Mayor of Ohio. But also the movie is really, really long. If you have an issue with that, I have really bad news about basically everything that we're going to watch for the entire rest of this podcast. Over the July 4th weekend, I also watched the extended edition of Gettysburg. It's four and a half hours. But with that, I am going to go for a full three tricorns for this movie. It obviously loses its point, some points for its sanitizing of the Black experience and some of what Laura points out is the hokier elements of its plot. But I think it gets some points back for what I think is one of the better overall depictions of the revolution on film and for what I think is a fairly nuanced portrait of the common soldiers' uh, motivations and experiences and for what I pointed out as its pretty straight-shooting treatment of the moderate position at the beginning of the war. I would, however, like to hereby register my plea to all of the filmmakers who are obviously listening to this podcast uh, to please make more stuff about the revolution. Finally, a few sundry other notes. If you're interested in that common soldier's experience of the revolution, I would recommend The Diary of Joseph Plum Martin. If you're already familiar with him, uh, it's probably because his diary is heavily used in the audio tour for the Valley Forge battlefield. Um, He serves all the way through the war up to the Yorktown campaign, where he takes part in some of its most pivotal moments. So it's a really great read. And if you're interested in the effort to form South Carolina's first black military outfit, check out Dr. Gregory Massey's book, John Lawrence and the American Revolution. 
Next time, we're watching one of my personal favorites, the 2006 film Amazing Grace, which covers William Wilberforce's efforts to get Parliament to ban the British slave trade, and in which our good friend Bannister Tarleton... Best name ever. ...gets dunked on in real life. So get your powdered wigs ready. All right. You can follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. You can also drop us a line on our Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook page. Or you can recommend a film to watch at CostumeDramaRewind at gmail.com. That's CostumeDramaRewind at gmail.com. See you next time for Amazing Grace.